0: someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And without missing a beat, I said, a lawyer. And the grown-ups laughed, but it wasn't a joke. And actually, I didn't just know that I wanted to be a lawyer, I knew exactly what kind of lawyer I wanted to be, a civil rights attorney. So every dinner table growing up was a preparation for trial. And every summer from high school Through the beginning of college was an opportunity for me to sharpen my chops in some aspirational internship. Every class in college for the first two years was some version of race, class, and gender in American politics and civil rights and civil liberties. I was on a path and I was determined to follow this path. But then I stumbled into my Jewish journey. You've probably heard me talk about it before. The part that I haven't talked about very much here is the love affair that I had with Jewish texts as I began my journey. Every day, my heart and my mind were stretched by the study of Talmud and Midrash, this ancient discourse of our rabbis in unpredictable and almost always meaningful ways. What sealed the deal for me in switching paths from law school to rabbinical school was one realization, that I could spend my entire life learning these ancient texts, and I would never stop being surprised, that there would always be something new, some astonishing revelation, some insight that, for me at least, was completely new. I was deeply taken by the prospect of a lifelong relationship with something ever-changing, something of unending depth. I know that some of you have found that in the law. For me, I found that in Jewish texts. My awe and appreciation of the surprising insight, the unexpected encounter, has led me down the most extraordinary paths. When I open a sefer, a sacred text, to the wrong page, I take note of where I am. Surely there is something for me to learn here, too. That's how, when my grandma Harriet was dying, I found the text in Avodah Zarah about two rabbis walking home on the road when they come upon a fork in the road. And they have to decide between two bad options, which led me to the realization that there is always, always a third way. That's how I came across the Mishnah in Midot that became the very heart of our community and the central organizing principle of my book and of my Torah, much more on that in the days ahead. Over the years, I have come to trust that the Torah that I need is not necessarily what I set out looking for, but what finds its way to me. That's how I came to the text that I want us to look at today, a text that emerged from a medieval midrashic collection called Sefer Hayashar, a surprise while looking for something else. So let me briefly set the scene. Joseph's brothers have conspired to sell him into slavery. They slaughter a goat. They dip Joseph's technicolor dream coat into the animal's blood. And then they return home to their father, Jacob, to report that Jacob's beloved son, Joseph, has been devoured by a savage beast. The callousness, the cruelty of the brothers lie to their father is breathtaking. What this midrash probes, though, differently from any other that I've seen, is the depth of the anguish that this provokes in their father Jacob's heart. Jacob is completely bereft. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. And he mourns his son for many, many days. He weeps bitterly and laments. He weeps and laments, weeps and laments. Like many other midrashim rabbinic commentaries, this text goes on to describe how all of the children of Jacob surround him trying to comfort him, but he refuses to be comforted. It's very touching. It even indicates that Isaac, Jacob's father, hears about the loss, and he too is bereft. He's so devastated by the news that he gets up from his home in Hebron, now a very old man, and he makes his way to Jacob in order to comfort him, but Jacob refused to be comforted. All of this is consistent with the common perception of what happened to our ancestor Jacob in those bitter and anguished days. But here's the part that Sefer Hayashar offers that is new, at least to me. After some time passes, Jacob rises from the ground with tears streaming down his face, And he says to his sons, get up, take your swords and your bows and go out into the field and do two things for me. First, bring me the body of my son so I may bury him in dignity. Second, search among the beasts of the field. Go on the hunt. The first beast that you meet, bring him to me. I pray that God will see my misery and bless me, that the one you bring to me is the one responsible for tearing up my son. Bring it to me, and I will avenge the death of my beloved son by slaughtering this beast. Can we not understand Jacob's desperation? His devastation, his need for closure, for finality, for physical evidence, his need for vengeance. He wants to even the score. The sons of Joseph, of course, know that they cannot fulfill the first of their father's requests. Remember, it is they who know that Joseph has been sold into slavery and that there is no body to return. But nevertheless, the Midrash says that they do what their father asks. They rise early in the morning armed with their swords and with their bows. They go out into the fields to hunt the beasts. And just as they enter the wilderness, a wolf comes bounding toward them. Remember that in ancient times, wolves were no friends of the human community. The wolf is a dangerous predator a wild, ravenous creature known to tear human beings to pieces. The prophet Jeremiah warns us about wolves. Beware, he says, a wolf from the desert shall devastate you. But it's a wolf that they see. And so the brothers seize the wolf, and they bring him before their father, saying, we couldn't find the body of your son But this is the first beast that we encountered in the wilderness and we have brought him to you as you instructed. Jacob took the beast from his sons and he cried out with a terrible anguished voice. He seized the beast with one hand and he spoke to the beast from the bitterness of his heart. Why have you devoured my beloved son, Joseph? How did you not fear God that you would deliver to me so much grief? From the loss of my child how could you have devoured my son with no just cause he never hurt you and now because of this the lord has delivered you to me for you are deserving of punishment jacob's voice and his hands must tremble in this moment he takes no pleasure in the slaughter but surely justice must be served but just then a miracle happens. The Lord opens the mouth of the beast, and it answers Jacob with these words. As God lives, the one who created me on this earth, and as your soul lives, know this. I have never seen your son. It was not I who tore him to pieces. But I have come from a distant land to this place because I too I'm seeking my son. Just as you have been separated from your son, so too have I been separated from mine. It's been 10 days, the wolf says. 10 days that I've been here searching for my child. I don't know where he is, or even if he is dead or alive. When I came out into this field today looking for my son, your sons found me. They seized me, adding grief to my grief, and they brought me to you. So I plead with you, son of man. My life is in your hands. I beg you not to do to me what seems best in your eyes. Instead, believe me, I have not seen your son, nor have I harmed him. In fact, I've never harmed anyone in my life. Please, the wolf begs, do not add grief to grief. And when Jacob heard the words of the beast, He was completely astonished. He released the animal and it went on its way. And Jacob continued weeping and lamenting for Joseph and he mourned over his son for many, many days. I am not a military strategist. I do not dare to suggest that I know how Israel is supposed to keep its people safe after Hamas has demonstrated through atrocities mimicking those of the most sadistic divisions of the SS, the Black Hunters and the Einsatzgruppen, and others with their shared goal of destroying Jewish life and degrading the Jewish spirit. I am not a military strategist, but I am a rabbi. I am a person who has been trained to read ancient texts and discern moral meaning for our time. When I read this text, I find myself searching for context. We don't know the precise author of Sefer Hayashar, this Midrash, but it has been tied to Venice, Italy in the Middle Ages. That means that the text likely emerged from the Venetian ghetto, where the Jews were forced to live without exception, in an enclosed area that was both walled and gated The gates were locked at night to contain the Jewish population so they would have no interactions with their Christian neighbors. Jews in the ghetto were not only forced to pay higher taxes than their neighbors, but they were often subject to violence and looting. As a rabbi, I find it hard to fathom how one could read a midrash like this, written by a Jew in a hostile time in a hostile land, and not marvel at the message that the author seems to be intent on communicating. The first thing that becomes clear when reading this Midrash is that wolves do not speak. So either a great miracle happened and this wolf opened its mouth and words came out that made sense to Jacob, or this wolf was not a wolf at all, but instead was a man. in a time in which there are real and true threats to Jacob and his family, to the Jews of Venice, to the Jewish people today. It seems clear to me that this ancient text is crying out to us that we must muster the moral imagination to reckon with the other, not as a bloodthirsty predator, but perhaps as a parent, just like us, also aching for their lost child. And when we fail to do so, when we see every other as a bloodthirsty predator hiding among the bushes, trying to find the right moment to attack, we endanger not only our lives, but we endanger our spirits. This week the New Israel Fund hosted a conversation between Colum McCann, author of the astonishing book A Paragon, in conversation with the two central subjects of the book, Rami El-Khanan and Bassam Aramin. Rami is an Israeli Jew. In 1997, his 13-year-old daughter Smadar was walking down bed Yehuda Street listening to her walkman when three Palestinian men detonated suicide bombs, murdering her along with four others. Bassam is a Palestinian Muslim. A decade after Smadar's death, Bassam's 10-year-old daughter, Abir, was shot in the back of the head by an 18-year-old Israeli soldier in what was later deemed by an Israeli court to be negligence. Abir's ambulance was delayed for several hours at the checkpoint on the way to Jerusalem for critical care. She later died in Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem the very same hospital where Smadar had been born years before. Rami and Bassam, these two bereaved parents, one Jew and one Palestinian, found one another through an organization called Combatants for Peace, which Bassam had helped found years before his own daughter died. McCann's novel, which many of you have read, I imagine, is a tribute to the two men's individual losses, to their shared grief, and to their commitment to one another and to peace. This week, those two men were asked, how have the atrocities of October 7th and the devastation of Israel's retaliation changed you or changed your commitments? Do you believe now that you are perhaps naive or Palianish in the quest for peace? Rami answers without hesitation, no, we have not been sobered. We who have lost the most have always known that we must do everything in our power to make peace, to stop the long line of dead children who pay the ultimate price for this violence. We have new strength now, he says, new purpose, because we know that there is only one way. This will not stop unless and until we talk to each other. Bassam repeats these words, perhaps for emphasis. This only ends when we talk to each other. He pleads with us, believe that a just future is possible. Believe that peace is possible. Israelis and Palestinians are both victims, he says. We simply must restart a peace process. I know that even hearing the words peace process in this climate, in this context, on our broken and raw spirits, even hearing the words peace process seems ridiculous to many. But here we have an Israeli Jew and a Palestinian calling us together, bereaved parents, to move beyond that instinctive reaction and once again imagine what might be possible were we to see one another as human beings. It's up to us, they say. We have no other choice. In the inverted logic of our time, Rami, an Israeli Jew, and Bassam, a Palestinian Muslim, can only be enemies. And yet these two men call each other brother. And nobody knows what to make of that. Colum McCann reflects now, four years after this book first came out, these two great men were cursed by hope, and that is a big burden. But he begs us to embrace not a weak hope, not a naive or sentimental hope, but a hope that has muscularity to it. We don't need to love each other, he says. We don't even need to like each other, but we absolutely need to strive to understand one another. Nobody knows who wrote Sefer Hayashar, this beautiful, painful, challenging Midrash, which calls us to open our hearts to the wolf, to hear his voice and even see his pain, so much so that we realize that he may not even be a wolf after all, but another person in his own quest to ease his own broken heart. But that author, whoever he is, is speaking to me in this time of so much anguish and so much heartache. He's speaking to me at the end of this painful and anguished week. One after the next this week, prominent voices for women's rights failed to offer full-throated condemnation of rape and sexual assault of women and even girls when the victims were Israeli. Presidents from three of the great universities in this country failed to pass the most basic moral test. Can you draw an unequivocal line at calls to genocide for Jews. Two months have passed now since October 7th. I have been shaken out of any naivete that I held about the world before that terrible Shabbat of Simchat Torah, Black Sabbath as it's now known. But even still, I feel called to the message of an old Jew living in the Venetian ghetto years ago, sitting by candlelight to write a midrash that would be be unearthed by accident generations later, perhaps precisely when needed most. Jacob is in profound grief. He is in agony, but adding grief to grief will not make him whole. It never does. Refuse, to accept that the world is full of only bloodthirsty wolves. Instead, I think that Rami and Bassam and the author of this Midrash would want us to try, just to try, to hear the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verse six. V'gar ze'ev im keves. One day, perhaps, the wolf will dwell in peace with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf, the beast of prey, and the fatling all together. And even the small children will be safe among them. Ken hear Ratzon.